0: Every year I have this dream that we get all this preparation ready for Easter and nobody shows up. So I am so relieved when you guys actually come. And I don't care why you're here. I mean, I'm not stupid. I know some of you are here because you promised your mom you would go to church on Easter. That's the only reason you're here. I'm glad you're here. I'm really, I'm excited about that. Some of you, is because somebody said, man, if you'll go to church with me, and so I have a friend at church, because Pastor Mike will get all over me if I don't have a friend, I'll take you to IHOP afterwards. So you're going to get a free meal at the IHOP. I'm just glad you're here, right? Some of you, you only go to church on Easter and Christmas. I am so glad you're here. By the way, Merry Christmas, because I won't see you again until we get, you know, to actual Christmas Eve. I don't care why you're here. I'm glad you're here, because this is our mission statement here of hope. Love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. So we don't care where you are. We just want to see what you can become in Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, that's really what Easter is all about. A couple of years ago, Laura and I had a chance to go to Las Vegas for a conference. I learned that from you business people, right? And uh, after a couple of days, I was finally able to pull Laura away from the penny slots, and we decided to go, you know, take an excursion to see Hoover Dam. Very, very impressive structure, 70 stories high, a fifth of a mile wide at the crest, enough concrete in Hoover Dam, think about this, to build a two-lane road from Miami all the way to Seattle. But it's interesting, the most impressive thing about Hoover Dam isn't the structure, it's the power it produces. Get this. A billion, four billion kilowatt hours of electricity a year. Four billion with a B. I have no idea what that means. I have no idea whatsoever, right? But this is what I know. Every year, the Hoover Dam changes darkness into light for 1.3 million people. That I get. So in my mind, the greatest evidence of the power of Hoover Dam isn't the enormity of the structure. The greatest evidence of the power is the change it creates in the lives of 1.3 million people. This is what Webster says about change. He describes it this this way, to make radically different, to alter, to modify, to transform. And what I want you to see this weekend is is what is true in the physical realm is equally true in the spiritual realm. For example, the Bible teaches that God is a God of infinite power. The theological term is God is omnipotent. It means he's all powerful, which means God can do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. The Bible also teaches that we can see God's power around us. We can see it in creation. We can see it in the universe. The apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. From the time the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky and all that God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. The psalmist wrote this on Psalm 148, verse 5. Let every creative thing give praise to the Lord for he, get this now, he issued his command and they came into being. I'm telling you, that's power. That God just spoke and the world came into existence. But I don't believe that the greatest evidence of God's power is when he spoke the world and the world came into, into, into place. Everything just kind of fell into order the way it was supposed to be. Although that is impressive. I believe the greatest evidence of God's power is when he changes a life. And we see this. We saw this in Sam's story. It's when he gets involved and he changes a life. A life that was a disaster, a mess. And he just makes something beautiful out of that light. Out of that light. That's why Paul wrote this in Romans chapter one, verse sixteen. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that changes lives. Now, if you're new to church, you're thinking, well, what's the gospel? Well, the gospel is what gives us the opportunity to be in a relationship with God, to be restored, reconciled into a relationship with God. The gospel is this. Back in the book of Genesis, mankind, because of their sin, broke the intimacy, broke the relationship with God. But if you read the Bible, it's basically a story of God trying to restore that relationship with man. He desperately wants to have that intimate relationship with us, so much so that 2,000 years ago, He took his most precious possession, his son Jesus Christ, wrapped him up in the form of of a baby and deposited him in Bethlehem. He gave us our Savior. Remember what the uh, the angel said to the shepherds, a Savior is born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And that Savior that was born in Bethlehem grew up to be a man knowing that every step he took across Palestine, he he was one step closer to his ultimate reason for coming to this earth. It was to die on the cross and pay for our sins so that we could be reconciled Restored back into a relationship with God. And he was placed in a tomb. And three days later, he came back from the dead. The resurrection took place. And I realized that for many of you, you were tracking with me. You were right there with the baby born in Bethlehem. We love that part of the story. You were right there with he lived a great life, taught some great things, did some incredible miracles. Even he was even killed on a cross and buried. I mean, you've seen that on the History Channel, right? But the fact that he came back to life, I mean, you just can't wrap your head around that. This is what I want you to hear this weekend. This is what you need to understand. Whether you believe in the resurrection or not, I'm telling you, if there is no resurrection, then there is no Savior. And if there is no Savior, there is no Christianity. I'm telling you, all you got to do is find the body of that dead Jew, Christianity crumbles into dust. So I want you to understand the foundation of everything we believe as Christians is based on one event that happened 2,000 years ago. It's based on the resurrection of Jesus. That is the foundation of all that we are. That is the foundation of all that we believe. And to be honest with you, you, if you want to know what Christianity, why it differs than any other world religion, this is why you can't compare Christianity to other religions. I mean, think about it. Every other uh, world religion, they had a prophet, they had a teacher who eventually died. And when that teacher, that prophet died, their followers were like, Our teacher, our prophet, he was so smart, so clever, so wise, so insightful. We've got to keep his dream alive. We've got to get his teaching out there. We've got to spread it throughout the world. And so those disciples, see, they went out and they spread the teaching, they spread the philosophy of that dead prophet. Do you know what Jesus' followers did after he died on the cross? Those losers went fishing. They did. You can read about it yourself. They were so discouraged, so distraught that they had wasted three years of their lives following Jesus around Palestine. They went into hiding. They thought, we're going to be the next ones on the cross, right? I'm telling you, they weren't holding holding a let's keep the dream alive rally. They were holding a let's keep us alive rally. And so when Jesus said, it is finished, I'm telling you, they scattered like rats on a sinking ship because in their mind, the charade was over. And then their mind, Jesus was a fraud. They're thinking, we got to get a life. We got to go out there and find real jobs again. Hey, Phil, you get the nets. John, you get the stink bait. Let's go fishing, right? But see, what these followers hadn't counted on was that three days later, he would actually rise from the dead, just as he predicted. And I'm telling you, that one event, the resurrection, <laughs> after it happened, somehow that bunch of cowards grew a spine regrouped and they went out and turned the world upside down but listen to what i'm going to say because this is the key it wasn't because of what jesus taught because even after all he taught they still deserted and went fishing it wasn't because of the miracles that jesus performed because even after all of the miracles he performed they still went into hiding it wasn't because he died on the cross because even after the crucifixion it still didn't ignite anything in the hearts of those men so what sent them back out on fire to change the world. What happened? I'm telling you, it was the resurrection. It's the fact they saw a dead man come back to life. And when Jesus rose from the dead, seriously, that changes everything, right? I want to show you an interesting story of how this change actually has played out. If you have your Bible, Acts chapter 3, I'll show you what I'm talking about. If you have your Bible, it's a few weeks after the resurrection. Let me just kind of set it up. Peter and John, a couple of the disciples, they're going around Jerusalem and they're telling everybody they run into how Jesus rose from the dead. They're like, hey, remember the crucifixion? You saw him, we've talked to him. We had breakfast with him. He's alive. And, and, it, and it's just working the crowd up into a frenzy. Now, you got to remember, as they're going around Jerusalem talking about the resurrection, this is the city where Jesus was arrested. This is the city where he was tried. This is the city where he was nailed to a cross. And so they're going around telling everybody he's alive, he's alive, we've seen him, he's alive. And as they're going around the city, they pass by the temple and they're like, hey, let's go into the temple to pray. And as they're making their way into a temple, they pass by a guy that we're told has been crippled from birth and now he's over 40 years old. We'll call him Joe. Joseph just hanging outside the temple, and maybe he's got a friend or two who every morning they go to his home, they help him get to the temple, they get him comfortable, and he would spend his day there begging for money, just trying to get enough money so that he could get a little bit of food so that he could survive. So he's hanging outside the temple. We pick up the story in verse 3 of Acts chapter 3. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple... He began asking to receive alms. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap he stood upright and he began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And when the people in the temple see Joe, who's been crippled since birth, walking and leaping and praising God, normally, they I mean, uh, naturally, they're blown away, right? And so they're like, Joe, what happened? What are you doing? He's like, ah. he points at Peter and John. I don't know, they did it, right? Of course, by this time, the rabbi, he's totally lost control of the service. All the people are looking at Joe. They're looking at Peter. They're looking at John. They want to know what happened. So Peter takes this opportunity to preach a little sermon. But I want you to see that the main point of his sermon isn't a review of the things that Jesus did while he's alive. It's not a review of what Jesus taught. It's not a review of the miracles that Jesus performed. The main point of his sermon is the resurrection. Now, why is that so significant? It's because Jesus is talking about the resurrection a few weeks after it happened. Get this now, in the city where it happened. I mean, think about this. This should be the easiest event in the world to disprove. All you got to do is to produce the body. How hard is it to prove that somebody is still dead, but they can't do it? So Peter, this is the same Peter who a few weeks earlier said, I don't know him, I don't know him, blankety blank, blank, I've never even met him, right? Peter says this in verse 14, but you, and he's talking to the Jewish leaders, you disown the holy and righteous one, talking about Jesus, and he asked for a murderer, you asked for a murderer in return, who was the murderer? Remember, anybody Remember? Barabbas. They said, give us Barabbas to be granted to you, but you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Not we heard it through the grapevine. Not we met a guy whose cousin was there. Not we read about it on Facebook or somebody tweeted it. We are witnesses. We saw him with our own eyes. Now naturally, you can imagine This is causing a huge commotion because people saw Jesus die on the cross. They saw his dead body put into a tomb. And now these guys are saying he's alive. So you get to chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day for it was already evening. By the way, as you're processing this whole thing, if if you're not really there yet about the resurrection, you're asking, did this really happen? Here's an interesting side note. If you read the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is really just the history of the early church, you'll discover that every time these guys went out in public and talked about the resurrection, every time they went around saying Jesus is alive, they either got thrown into jail, they got stoned, they got beaten, or they got run out of town. See, they weren't being asked to be on the Jimmy, you know, the Jimmy Fallon show. That's not what's going on here. Nobody's trying to get them to write a book. I mean, if they're getting rich off of this gig, I think we would have every right to be suspicious. But every time they brought up the resurrection, something bad happened to these guys. And I don't know about you, but when something bad happens to me after I do something, I generally stop doing that. You know, I've been married 36 years. I've learned, well, don't do that anymore. We used to have the dumbest little dog, dumb as a rock, a little Yorkie Terrier. And we got the little underground electric fits, you know. And, uh, you know, at some point you got to introduce that dog to that electric fence, right? Well, I thought I'll do that because I didn't really like this dog. But anyway, um, so I took her out there. And of course, she's just as happy as she can be. And she, bam, hits that fence, you know, and she does a pirouette and like four somersaults in the pike position and lands and runs back on the porch, does not leave the porch for like four months, doesn't go to the bathroom for like four months. Even that dog figured out, I'm not going out in that yard, something bad will happen, right? Not these guys. Not these guys. It says in verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed. What message? The message of the resurrection. And the number of men came to be about 5,000. It grew from about 3,000 in Acts chapter 2, now to 5,000 plus wives, plus children, embracing the truth of the resurrection in the city where it happened. We're talking a few hundred yards from where it all went down and took place. So these religious leaders, they call in Peter and John. They want to have a little come-to-Jesus meeting, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, verse 7. When they had placed them, Peter and John, in the center, they began to inquire by what power or in what name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. That by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, by the way. He loved to remind them of that. Just get that knife in there and twist it a little bit. Whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Once again, they don't talk about the warm, fuzzy teachings of Jesus. Love your neighbor, you know, help the poor, feed the hungry. The driving force is the resurrection. Verse 13, now as they, the rulers, observed the confidence of Peter and John. I mean, aren't, they're like, is it, aren't, isn't this the guy who said he didn't know Jesus, Right? And they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them. I mean, he's like Exhibit A just in there, right? They had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to lead the council, they began to confer with one another saying, What shall we do with these men for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it guys what are we going to do how are we going to explain what happened we can't deny it we i mean after all joe's been sitting outside the front door for years we've all given him money at one time or another now he's jumping around and leaping around dancing a jig i mean you can't unring that bell what are we going to do this is what they decide verse 17 so that it will not spread any further among the people let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name In other words, if you want to talk about prayer, fine. If you want to encourage people to love and forgive one another, fine. But you cannot use the J word. Don't mention the name of Jesus. It is just causing us way too much grief. Verse 18, and when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Look at this, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Again, weren't promoting some religious philosophy, not promoting the teachings of Jesus. They're not saying, nope, this is what we decided to believe. They are willing to lay their lives on the line for what they had seen and heard. Verse 21, when they had threatened them further, they let them go on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what happened. Plus, they didn't have anything on them. And here it is, the man was 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. And let me show you how Peter and John responded to this big bad threat in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I mean, they were like the energizer bunny. They just right on out there, just kept talking about Jesus. We saw him, he's alive, the resurrection. And what's interesting, history tells us that the same group of losers that scattered like rats on a sinking ship when Jesus died, They came back together, and eventually they died for what they had seen and heard. This isn't in the Bible. This is just history. You can do the research yourself. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia with a sword. Mark died in Egypt after being drugged by horses through the city streets of Alexandria until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece for preaching. Peter was crucified upside down for preaching the gospel. James, Jesus' half-brother, was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple. He survived. They beat him to death with a club. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. Bartholomew, also called Nathanael, was a missionary to Asia, now Turkey. He was flayed to death by a whip for preaching. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear while preaching in India. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows when he wouldn't deny his faith. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Paul was tortured and then beheaded by Nero. John's the only one who wasn't martyred, and he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. How do you explain that? died for what they believe i'm telling you if it was a hoax and they're willing me into the Colosseum to feed me to the lions i am singing like a canary i'm turning on everybody i'm like i'll tell you where we hid the body come here i'll show you he's still dead no mm -mm. what changed how do you explain it's very simple and when you see a dead man come back to life well that changes everything it's like mm -hmm, i want to be on his team right right And when Jesus rose, it validated the fact that he is indeed who he claimed to be. When he rose, it's like, look at me, guys. I am the Son of God, the Savior, who is qualified to save you from your sins and restore you back into a relationship with God. That's the power of the resurrection. That is the power of the gospel. It changes lives. And Paul says, I am not ashamed to tell you I'd like you to meet one of my closest friends whose life has been radically changed. Watch the side screen.
1: I think it's pretty natural for a little brother to look up to his big brother. Certainly was true for me. I idolized mine. It was more than just the motorcycles and leather jackets. Really it was the way that none of the rules seemed to apply to him. The way he lived for the rush. Growing up that rush became everything to me. My brother was a drinker and so that became part of my life too. Drugs, well they soon followed. I was 14 when I stole my first car. Sure, I wanted the money for drugs and alcohol, but it was more about the the rush of pulling off the heist. Afterwards, we'd strip the cars for parts and burn the shells. But it still wasn't enough of a thrill. Then I started dealing drugs to fuel my lifestyle. Now, I was no longer just hurting myself. I was hurting people around me. That year, I was arrested for reckless endangerment after a high-speed police chase. I knew where my life was headed. Everybody did. If I didn't make a turn soon, I was either going to end up in prison or dead in a gutter somewhere. But then something happened soon after I turned 17. Late one fall evening, my brother came looking for me. He told me that he'd given his life to Jesus, that he was changing everything about his life. Now that made me furious. But God wasn't giving up on me, and neither was my brother. Over and over again, he'd tell me, Gary, I love you and I'm praying for you. Around that same time, my best friend Brian was killed in a motorcycle accident. The grief, the loss, and the shame I felt was overwhelming. It could have been me, and maybe it should have been me. So around 2 a.m., one cold night in March, I gave my life to Christ. At that exact moment, it was like a physical weight was lifted from my shoulders and my whole life and destiny was changed forever. Soon after, a Bible replaced the bottle of Jack Daniels that used to live in my back pocket. Later on, I would come to learn that sharing my love of the Bible was a reason I was created. Today, I don't idolize my brother anymore. It's more than that. Because of his love and persistence, I have a whole new life in Christ and I could never go back to who I was before. Instead of destroying the lives of people around me, I'm helping them start new relationships with God for the very first time. Now that's the best rush anyone could ever experience.
0: That's a great story of a changed life, yeah. Gary went on to college, he went on to seminary where he got his doctorate, now he's my right hand man here at Hope Community Church, and God is now using him to impact and change the lives of other people. But I got to tell you something, just like the story of Gary, just like the story of Sam, this is what I want you to know, the minute you come to the conclusion, my life is a mess, my marriage is a mess, my kids are a mess, my finances are a mess, whatever the wake up call is, the moment you realize, you know, I don't need another chance, I need saving, at that moment. Jesus Christ, who is the Savior, (laughs) will intersect with your life. But here's the thing. you got to get to that point on your own. And if you're not there yet, I'll help you by just telling you, you need a Savior. You may not realize it, but you need a Savior. In fact, you're reminded of it every day. I mean, let's just be honest. Some of you have alcohol issues. Some of you have drug issues, money issues, morality issues. Some of you have integrity issues. You've tried everything to change. You can't save yourself. Some of you, you're sitting here divorced. You did everything you possibly could to save your marriage. You couldn't save your marriage. You wanted to save your kids. You couldn't save your kids. You prayed, you begged, you bartered with God. They went on their merry little way. You weren't able to save that relationship that you thought the world revolved around. It was so important to you. I mean, just in the everyday mundane areas of life, we are just reminded we need a Savior. But I want you to hear me. This is where Christianity is so liberating. Because I think often that we think, well, if I get into a relationship with God, there's all these restrictions and boundaries and, and I won't have any fun in life. Let me, you got to understand, the relationship between the saved, that would be us, and the saver, that would be Jesus. That is not like any other relationship. And it's because, think of it this way, if somebody comes along and saves you from something. Say you're drowning and they save you. Or say your marriage is on the rock and somehow rocks and somehow they get involved and they save your marriage. Or maybe financially you're getting ready to go down and they step in and maybe they give you money and maybe they help you reorder your financial world and they save you. See when something like that something automatically happens, first of all, there's unfiltered emotion. I mean, you, you cannot express how grateful you are. But second, there is unsolicited devotion. You would follow that person anywhere. You would do anything for them. You're like, here are all my phone numbers. Here's my email. Call me 24-7 and I will be there for you. See, that's a lot different than I, well, I guess I ought to, right? Let me just say this. If you think a relationship with God is about, well, I guess I'm getting to the stage at life where I ought to do this. Let me tell you something. You got it wrong. You've never come face to face with the reality that there's a Savior Who died on the cross because he loves you so much and he wants to save you and when that gets from here to here I'm telling you if it ever gets from your head to your heart it alters your approach to everything God wants and expects from you because now it's in the context of oh yeah of course I'll do that of course I'll do that he's he's my Savior right and there's a lot of people sitting around you right now that have learned anything you turn over to the Savior He'll save. I've seen couples who've had the worst marriages imaginable. I've seen people in horrible financial situations, people struggling with alcohol issues, drug issues, sex issues. My point is this. When you come to Christ, whatever you're willing to give the Savior, He is willing to save. But I want to tell you something. He will not rip it out of your hands. He's very, very patient. He waits until we're ready to say, I cannot do this anymore. Take my life and save me and he'll take it because that's what he does he's a savior that's the gospel god sent a savior for you and me because he so desperately desires to have a relationship with us and the first step toward having that relationship is realizing i need a savior i'm just telling you as your friend on easter (laughs) you're just a prayer way from making that turn toward God and having your life changed to the life you always desired your life to be. You're just one prayer away. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to lead you in a prayer if you would like to make that decision to become a Christian, to accept God's free gift of salvation, the Savior of Jesus Christ, who who will forgive you of your sins, your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. They will be wiped clean. And God will see you as if you're perfect. And because you're perfect, he will be able to have a relationship with you. And he's going to take you on as a project. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, he who begins a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Once he begins, he's going to get you where he wants you to be. And I'm going to tell you, when you get there, you will experience joy and happiness like you'd never dreamed possible. If you're ready to make that decision, I'm going to leave. There's nothing magical about this prayer. But if you pray these words to God and speak to him as if these words are coming from your heart, it tells us all through the scripture that if we call upon the name of the Lord God, if we accept his free gift of salvation, that he saves us immediately. Pray this after me. Dear God, I believe that Jesus is your son. And I believe that when he died, he died for me. I believe that he was buried and I believe that he rose after three days. I believe that he is the savior of the world and I receive him right now as my savior. Please accept me into your family right now, not based on my efforts, not based on my good works, not even based on this prayer, but based on my faith in what you did on my behalf. Thank you for forgiving me and thank you for accepting me. In Jesus' name I pray this. Father, I pray for those who just prayed that prayer to you from their heart, who came to the realization, the crossroad where they had to make a turn and they turned towards you and said, I need a Savior. Father, I pray that they would sense right now a peace that their relationship is right with you that their sins are forgiven, that you're going to empower them to be the person you created them to be, and you're going to take them on a journey with you that one day, ultimately, even when they take their last breath, will end in a place called heaven with you. I thank you for the courage to make this decision, Father. And I pray for the journey as they begin to experience your goodness, your grace, your love in their life. In your name we pray, amen.